you're listening to Radio Looks Listen, I'm your host, Steve Matthews. Thanks for joining me this evening for episode 86. The title of this episode is Roe vs. Wade, Will It Be Overturned? Yeah, there was a lot of talk, of course. It's kind of hard to miss it this past week about the, uh, the Roe v. Wade decision, or I should say the leak of the Supreme Court draft to uh, overturn the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, which is, of course, is when the Supreme Court at that time acknowledged there is a constitutional right to for a woman to have an abortion. That legalized it, had the effect of legalizing abortion in the United States. And it has been that way for, well, very nearly 50 years, 49 years uh, at, at this point. And so this is a, a really a, a momentous decision. And there's a, there's a lot going on. Of course, it's not a final decision yet. And we're going to get and we're going to talk some about that. But this was, this was the probably the single biggest story of this past week. And certainly something that as Christians we, we would want to talk about and have a real interest in, in getting into. And we'll definitely do that. You know, before I dig into that that main story this week, I just wanted to say hi to everybody. Hope you've had a great week so far. This is Saturday. It's May seventh, twenty twenty two. So we're a week, uh, almost a week into to May here. It's kind of hard to believe we've uh, we've gotten that far in. And you know, it's it's starting to look pretty much close to summer here in Cincinnati. Even though we were kind of cool today, you know, the the trees are all the foliage is is all out or very close to being completely one hundred percent out and. We're supposed to get back in the 80s this coming week, which is pretty typical for this time of year. It seems like right around the first, second week of May, that's when, at least in this area, is when we really get into the full swing of, of summer. I think uh, what's the uh, the rule of thumb? You know, you're supposed to plant, put your tomato plants out after Mother's Day. So it's getting to the point where, yeah, you can go ahead and you can put your tomato plants out without having to worry about them being frosted. Obviously, depending on what part of the country you may be, you may have been at that point a month ago, or you may not be quite there yet. But that's that's where we are here in in Southwest Ohio, at at any rate. And uh, Spencer was talking about Southwest Ohio. You know, I, I mentioned last week that my Reds were in a Cincinnati Reds were in a, a an epic, uh, having an epically bad start to their season, and that's continued over the past week. I think they actually did win a game here tonight. They they uh, last Friday's game, last night's game was rained out, so they played a doubleheader, and they won the first end of the doubleheader, but they were losing the second game, and so I think they're gonna. I don't know if they're going to start a new losing streak or not here, but it, it I wouldn't be be terribly surprised. And, and I have to admit, this is this is kind of a a perverse thing about me as a as somebody who who follows sports. Sometimes when you get a team that's really really bad, you just you almost just want them just to stay bad because I mean, if if you're going to be bad, you may as well be historically bad. You may as well give somebody people something to remember. Now, you know, I really I don't think that's probably a very healthy attitude to have, but. <laughs> Sometimes it's easy to get into that very negative mindset about a uh, about a baseball team or maybe some other team that that maybe you happen to follow. It's like if you're going to be bad, you may as well be really, really bad. And uh, well, it looks like the the Reds have definitely have the opportunity to to be really, really bad this year. I I don't think they're going to probably set the record for for the number of most number of losses in the season i i think that's held by the 1962 mets which was the first year i believe that was their expansion year that was the first year that that team ever played and and they were managed by the the great casey stengel who managed all the great yankees teams in the in the 1950s and he, he had the misfortune of of going over the new york mets 
for the uh, for their first season. And I think that things got so bad at one point. He he famously asked, "Can anybody around here play this game?" That was that was uh, Casey Stengel suffering through the uh, the 1962 Mets uh, historically bad season. So I don't know. Uh, I think they lost 120 games that year, if, if memory serves me correctly. And that's that's a winning percentage of a, that's about a 25 percent winning percentage, which is uh, remarkably brutal. That's, so I, I hope that the, that the Reds don't lose seventy five percent of their games this year. But yeah, who knows? I mean, right now they're on a pace to exceed that. So uh, I guess I guess we'll see. Anyway, uh, as, as some people like to say, I guess they call that first world problems. And uh, I don't know. It, it it's uh, it's actually kind of nice to complain about the uh, the woeful uh, local nine and then talk about some of the garbage that's going on in the news. You know, it's interesting. I was at a at a uh, a men's Bible study. It was a Friday morning Bible study that I go to, and the uh, one of the the gentlemen there he was was mentioning that that his wife gets really upset when she watches TV, and she's always talking to the TV because she sees all this stuff out there that that's always all this really bad news. And even the doctor told her to watch less news, <laughs> apparently. And you know, I, I I completely get that. I mean, my my inclination is to to want to rant and rave and yell and scream and all that type of thing when I I see some of the stuff that's going on. And it's it's important to uh, to take a step back. And you know, especially as as Christians, you know, as as Reformed believers, we know that all all of this is uh, from the hand of the Lord. We know that, and it's that's not something that we have to. Uh, to guess at that's that's something that the the scriptures teach. Yeah, I remember when I first came to Reformed theology years ago. I kept reading about some of these uh, the, these uh, people would talk about this this strange concept. They they would talk about the decrees of God, and I kept thinking, what what, what are the decrees of God? Yeah, I had never never heard of these things before. I was it was about thirty years old, and nobody ever taught me about the decrees of God. What, what's this supposed to mean? And um, yeah, I, I remember coming across that then in. In the uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and it, it talks about this, and you know, it says the decrees of God are His eternal purpose according to the uh, His eternal purpose according to the the counsel of His where well will whereby for His own purpose He hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. So you know, God has foreordained it, and not only did He foreordain things, He foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. That means all things. God is sovereign. There's, there's nothing that happens. Not there's not not one molecule, not one atom is out of place from where it should be, from what God decreed from all eternity, and and God decreed from all eternity that I'd be sitting here doing this podcast tonight, and that you would be listening to this podcast, whether you're on the live stream or whether maybe you're you're listening to the recording. He decreed that, and that's that's a, a truly amazing thing to think about. But that that is a very reformed doctrine. That is a very God centered doctrine. It's a very biblical doctrine, and you can you can show this from the scriptures, and and that's something that as Christians, no matter how how bad things get, and and let's face it, you know, there, there's a lot of bad stuff going on right now, and, and I don't mean to minimize that. I don't mean to 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 whitewash it and say, oh, well, it's not so bad. No, it, it's really bad, and you know, depending on where in the world you might happen to live, I can just think here in in the United States where I am. Some of the real evil that has seized control of the institutions of our country, whether you're talking about the government, I mean, we have a, a fake president, uh, somebody who was installed uh, by, I think, the deep state, uh, speaking very broadly. 
You know, we have corrupt businesses. You know, you look at some of the perversions that are being put out. Uh, Walt Disney's maybe the poster child for that sort of thing right now. Walt Disney Company. We talked about that some last week. You see this in uh, the schools, in universities. There was a I hadn't even meant to to really mention this here to, this evening, but there was actually a story that came out, and this was a I don't know, it was a week or two back, and it was talking about these um, I don't know what they what do they call them like uh, transgender closets or something like this in in schools, and apparently what these things are are these these places where where kids who claim to be transgender they can go to these these. Uh, uh, when when they go to school, there's this closet they can go to, and there's this locker, and and they can change out their clothes. So I guess if you're a boy, you can go there, and you can change out from your boys' clothes into girls' clothes, and you can pretend to be a girl all day at school. And then before you go home, you can go back to your locker, change back in your boys' clothes, and go back home. And you know, so your parents are none the wiser. And apparently, this is a real thing that uh, that's going on. And uh, in fact, let me uh, I wasn't even going to talk about this tonight. But I just thought about it, and it, it's such an outrageous thing that I thought it would be at least something to share here with you. Okay, yeah, here we go. So, so this is this is the Epic Times, and you can see here it says more secret gender transition clauses discovered in public schools. Groups fear parents are being kept in the dark. Well, yeah, duh, uh, they certainly are. So here we go. Uh, they started in colleges, but trans closets. Room stocked with transgender clothes and accessories for students to change into after arriving at school and back out of before going home are being discovered in public schools with some indication that they're being kept secret from parents. In a recent TikTok video, a California teacher implies that the trans closet he started at the high school where he works is meant to be kept from parents. This is a quote from the teacher, quote, The goal of the transition closet is for our students to wear the clothes that their parents approve of, come to school, and then swap, into cl- swap out into clothes that, uh, that fit who they truly are, end quote, the teacher said. The California Family Council and others eventually confirmed the identity of the teacher as Oakland Unified School District Spanish teacher Thomas Martin Edwards, who's also the founder of Queer Teacher Fellowship. Martin Edwards, the teacher who runs the trans closet, is also transgender. He's posted videos of himself in the classroom showing off the stilettos he wears to school. Neither Martin Edwards, a former assistant principal in another school district, nor the school responded to inquiries by the Epic Times about the trans closet. This is an example of the deceit schools are deliberately using to carry out a growing transgender movement in public schools behind the backs of parents. California Family, Family Council, a Christian conservative group, wrote on its website, In addition to gender ideology madness, the school is teaching children that it is acceptable to defy their parents. So yeah, I mean, there's, there's a couple of, at least a couple of things going on here. You have, on the one hand, you have schools uh, promoting um, gender confusion, sexual perversion. And, and then, of course, there's the lying aspect. You know, the, the students are being taught to conceal this from the parents, and the schools themselves are also concealing it from the parents. So there's, there's a lot of lying going on here as well, a lot of false witness bearing. And, and this, is, this is going on apparently in public schools. And I mean, I, I would never, I was absolutely astounded when I, I first read about this. And, and probably had this been maybe at some time in the past, maybe I would have been a little bit skeptical of that. But, you know, it, it just, it seems like there's just more and more of this stuff out there. Just the stuff that we do know that goes on, I mean, certainly makes this believable. I mean, you've got, so you've got schools pushing this thing. You've got universities pushing this sort of thing. 
You've got businesses, and not just Disney, but but lots of different businesses pushing it. Of course, it's being pushed in entertainment. It's being pushed in movies. Uh, this stuff's being pushed in comic books. You know, it's amazing how, you know, I, I, I was kind of a comic book nerd growing up as a kid. You know, I'd, I'd read Spider-Man or Captain America or these kinds of things. And now these, these things have all gone woke. And it's it's uh, it, it's quite remarkable how how the the woke agenda has filtered into even things like comic books that maybe you wouldn't necessarily think would be be vehicles for that sort of thing, but they have become that. So anyway, let's uh, move on. I wanted to talk about uh, a little bit of, uh, about the abortion story here. So th- this whole thing, as you I'm sure you heard this past week, you know there was this this supposed leak of a. Uh, of the uh, of a draft decision, you know, by the Supreme Court, it was written by Samuel Alito. Yeah, Samuel Alito is one of the the conservative justices on the Supreme Court, and it was a a majority a draft of majority opinion he was writing that overturns Roe versus Wade. That, again, Roe v. Wade that was the the landmark 1973 Supreme Court decision that legalized abortion in in all 50 states. And of course, the reaction was was fast to that. In fact, it's kind of interesting here. Uh, here's this is a an article from Politico. It's got the headline that says Democrats hope draft abortion will jolt midterm elections. You know, there's a a lot of of speculation. You know, of course, you know who leaked this uh, this draft. Well, nobody knows exactly, but the number of people who would have had access to something like that is very small. There's a lot of speculation. Is probably a, a one of the the judge's clerks uh, very well may have done this, and and we don't know. And we think, and of course, a lot of people think that it was probably one of the the liberal justices clerks that had released this, and with the idea that um, you know it would would make this a public issue, that it would would help fire up the Democrats, and of course, that's what this headline. Uh, suggest here. It says Democrats hope draft abortion opinion will jolt midterm elections. The Supreme Court's potential move to overturn Roe v. Wade sparked frustration and vows to protect abortion rights from governors, senators, and House members. So yeah, it 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 seems like it's a uh, perhaps possibly one of the motives here is to to fire up the Democratic base to give them something to rally around because right now they really don't have a lot to rally around. I mean, uh, Joe Biden is certainly not uh, very inspiring. I think even if you're a, a progressive, you're a liberal, you're a Democrat, I mean, Joe Biden, he looks pretty shaky. You know, I mean, he, he makes a lot of gaffes and he's very obviously not someone who's has the mental acuity, the sharpness that that he once did. And and it's a big problem. You know, Kamala Harris is is pretty much an embarrassment. Biden's poll numbers, his approval numbers, have just been been terrible. So yeah, I mean the Democrats are definitely struggling. They've got huge problems that they've created themselves with uh, immigration, uh, for example. That that's a major issue. And that's totally one hundred percent a Democrat issue. You know they brought that on themselves. There's a lot of people very upset, and a lot of Democrats very upset. And it's interesting the the Democrats are having such a hard time with even retaining their base. Apparently, that more Democrats, and this was something that was released. It was in a some uh, I don't know some publication that that tracks this sort of thing. It came out that that uh, more Democrats watch Tucker Carlson than than any other uh, talk show host on on television. At least on cable TV. So I mean, he's out, he's outdrawing even the people on CNN and MSNBC, for example. 
uh, among Democrats, which is is really surprising in some ways. But I guess in a way, it really isn't because the the Democratic Party has become so unhinged that I think anybody, I, I mean, I think they're just regular rank and file Democrats are looking at some of this stuff and saying, you know, we just don't support this. We can't support this. I mean, this is this is a disaster. And it really is. Uh, it, it really is a disaster for the Democrats. I mean, they, they seem to be completely melting down. They seem to have uh, really um, not much in the way of, uh, of contact with reality these days. And, and that's one of the things that, that's really hurting them. And I, I think they know that. I think their political strategists know that. So they got to do something to try to, to galvanize the base to, to keep people voting Democrat. In fact, there was a, uh, a big hit piece that was done on Tucker Carlson this past week, and some people have speculated that maybe one of the reasons the New York Times ran this hit piece on Tucker Carlson is to try to shame Democrats back into into watching CNN and MSNBC and, the, and then not watch Tucker Carlson. That, that could be. You know, again, that's speculative, but I mean, that, that seems to be, I think, a pretty good explanation of why the, that hit piece was timed for this past week. Because they want to, you know, they, they don't want people he hearing some of that stuff. So anyway, uh, it, it's kind of an interesting thought. But yeah, here's, here's this piece, and it's talking about Democrats hope draft abortion opinion will jolt midterm elections. And you can read this here. And let's see, just reading through a little bit of it, it says, the disclosure of a draft majority opinion. It says here, the disclosure of a draft majority opinion that indicates the Supreme Court has voted to overturn Roe v. Wade instantly jolted Democrats from a bout of political malaise Monday night, and many hope it could change the tide of the midterm elections. So again, you know, some people are speculating, including this uh, this particular podcaster, you know, that this is just another typical dirty trick from the Democrats to uh, to try to rig the election. Uh, I think that that is a real possibility. I mean that that is my read on this. You know, again, that's an opinion, but I, I think that type of thing is consistent with with the the type of behavior we've seen out of the Democrats in the past. They will do whatever it takes to win. They're very Machiavellian. You know, the ends justify the means. And if it means you have to cheat, it means you have to, to do things like this. Well, there's, there are people who are certainly willing to do that type of thing. So let's take a look at a few other things here. Oh, yeah, this is one of the things I wanted to, to share with you here. This is uh, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts having a, uh, quite the meltdown. And let's, uh, let's listen to, to Elizabeth Warren here. This is the person she wanted to be president a couple years ago. So let's see what she has to say. And it looks like my cursor locked up here. What's going on here? Come on, you. All right. Let's go ahead and play a little bit of that video clip. Congress 
can change all of this. Yes. Okay, well, that's, that's enough uh, from Elizabeth Warren there. So she's uh, she's angry, uh, as you can you can tell that she's quite angry. Now, there's a, a few things that's interesting here in in her argument. Of course, she she plays up the class issue. I mean, what she says is, well, you know, there's uh, there's this issue where, okay, you know, wealthy middle class women, or whatever, they can can take care of this, and the burden of it's not going to fall on it. But it's 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 the it's the poor that this is going to hit, and and that this is a bad thing be, because of that. In, in her, in her reasoning here. Well, you know, the, here's the thing. When, when it comes to, to government, and we've talked some about this on the program before, but it's worth, bears mentioning this again. You know, what's the purpose of civil government? You know, the Apostle Paul and Peter also gave, gave two basic reasons. Punish those who practice evil and praise of the good. Punish those who, who practice evil, you know, to, to stop those who, who are committing crimes. To put an end to the, to, to prevent people to, you know, if somebody is going out there and committing crimes, to stop that person from doing it. On the other hand, when it talks about praising the good, that's understood to mean, you know, passing laws that are consistent with, with what the scriptures teach. Those are the two purposes of government. And, and so one of the things that we have here, one of the, the roles of the civil magistrate is to, uh, is to restrain evil. I think that was, uh, in fact, that was uh, John Calvin's his second use of the law. It was the idea that one of the uses of the law is to restrain evil. You know, there were three uses of the law that John Calvin gave. Let's see, the first one was to convict of sin. The second one was to restrain evil. And the third one was to be used as a guide, uh, as as a way of of uh, teaching believers, teaching the faithful, how to live lives that are pleasing to God. Because of course, you know what's the definition of sin? You know, sin is the the uh, any one of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That's the that's the way the the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, and I think that's a very good biblical definition. What we you know as as believers, of course, we want to to live our lives according to the law of God. Now we don't do that to uh, gain salvation. But as those who are already saved, we're motivated to live godly lives, and we know how to live godly lives because of what the law of God teaches us. But of course, when we're talking about the second use of the law, we're really talking about um, how that pertains to, say, uh, public morality. Okay, we're talking about basically how how the the law of God relates to civil government, and civil government has an obligation. I mean, civil government is not some independent institution that just came into existence out of its own. Civil government is a creature of God. Civil government is is given by God. Paul even talks about that. You know, he says he, he calls the the civil magistrate God's minister. You know, the powers that be you know, are, are ordained by God. Paul says, you know, he describes the civil magistrate again as as God's minister. So the civil magistrate is not some uh, independent creation. It's not something that was created by by human means. It's it's a, actually a creation of God. It's a partial punishment for, as well as a partial cure of sin. And the job of the civil magistrate is to restrain sinful men from doing even worse things. And one of the ways you do that is by punishing those who practice evil. 
That's how you, you restrain evil because there's consequences. And when people see that, they say, okay, maybe I wanted to go do something that was illegal, but I don't want to suffer the fines or, or possibly execution because of, because I committed a, a, a crime. I, I don't want to get, I don't want to do the punishment. I don't want to receive that kind of punishment. So I'm not going to do that crime. And now as Christians, of course, we, as I said, you know, we, we want to live our lives in a way that's pleasing to God. Now, that's the difference between someone who's a Christian and someone who, who's not a Christian. As Christians, we're motivated. We want to keep the law of God. We don't do it perfectly, but we want to do it. Whereas the mind that, that's, uh, that's not regenerate is enmity with God and is going to tend to want to break the law. That's, that's what happens when you're dealing with, with unregenerate people. And that's why you have to have civil government to restrain that. So that's one of the jobs of civil government is by passing laws that, that restrain sinful behavior. You know, some people like to say, you can't legislate morality. Well, actually, you can legislate morality. You, you really can. And in fact, that's the job of the civil magistrate is to legislate morality. You know, now some people say, well, you know, if you pass laws against abortion, well, women are still going to have abortions. Well, yeah, yeah, they, they will. I mean, it's just like you can pass laws against theft, but there are still thieves, or you can pass laws against murder, but there are still murderers. People still kill other people. But, I mean, how much more theft, how much more murder, how many other crimes would you have go on if there were no laws against these things, if there was no criminal justice system, if there was no punishment? If nobody was ever punished for murder, you'd have a lot more murder than what you have right now. If nobody was punished for theft, you'd have way more theft than what you have now. In fact, you can see this going on in certain liberal jurisdictions like California. We see these smash and grab robberies have become very common. Or you see these videos, maybe if you go online and you can see people going into you know, like a Walgreens store or something like that, and just big with like a big garbage bags, and they're just literally grabbing handfuls, armloads of stuff off shelves, toss them in, in these sacks, and walking out the door, and nobody does anything to stop them because of some of the local ordinances. In some of these cities out there in California where they say, well, you know, they're not, the police aren't even going to get involved as long as the dollar value is under, is under $1,000 of, of the property stolen. I don't know if these thieves go in there and say, well, I've got $999 worth of stuff in this bag and I'm going to walk, stop and walk out the door. I'm sure nobody <laughs> is, is, is that careful about keeping track of this stuff. I think they probably look at it and say, oh, okay, yeah, he's stolen about the right amount of stuff and, you know, we'll, we'll just let him go. And you see this stuff. And you've even seen, I, I know that there are people, I've, I've seen stories to this effect in San Francisco who are actually, when they park their cars in the street and go do whatever it is they're going to do, they will leave their trunk open and in their cars open, and they might even put a sign in the window or something like that. You know, please don't destroy my car because because they they don't want to have their um, you know their their windows smashed in or I guess their trunk pried open and these kinds of things. So they're just sort of preemptively just leaving this stuff uh, out in the open so thieves won't uh, won't smash their car up. It's madness, but that's the kind of thing that you get when the civil government does not do its job of punishing those who practice evil. Now, they've got laws in the books against theft, but either they're not enforced or they have, have changed them such that, um, you know, as I said, they've raised the dollar limit to like $1,000 or something like this before the police will even try to do something. So, you know, effectively, there is no law against theft if it's under a certain dollar amount. They just let it happen. I mean, that's insanity. 
Um, so yeah, I mean the the civil government, the job of the civil government is to pass laws, and I, I know that you know you've got people like Liz. Elizabeth Warren out there saying, "Oh, well, we can't do this because it's going to the the effects of this are going to fall on on poor women." I mean, there, and there are many people who make this kind of argument. And well, the fact of the matter is, whether you're poor, or whether you're rich, you're not allowed to murder. Whether you're poor, or you're rich, you're not allowed to steal. Uh, whether you're poor, or you're rich, you're not allowed to do a lot of other things out there. All kinds of different crimes. You know, ideally, that law should apply equally to everyone. And the important thing for the civil government to do is to stop the, the abortion murders that go on. That's the job of the civil magistrate. That is the job. And that job has been preempted by the Supreme Court ruling in the United States for these last 49 years. Now, what's interesting, too, when you listen to Elizabeth Warren, that, that uh, clip that we played, um, you know, she talks about, uh, you know, the, the poor women who are going to be affected by this in, in her – that's her claim – she claims that you know there's people that are victims of of rape and incest and and various other reasons uh, why people get abortion and, and, and the the weight of this law is going to be fall on these people and these Republican congressmen have been working for decades to overturn this they have no compassion on any of these people well here here is a a very interesting statistics that I came across here this past week talking about abortions now this particular set of statistics here comes from the state of Florida. And I'll just read this here. It says, the state of Florida records a reason for every abortion that occurs within its borders each year. Now, these statistics are for 20, from 2015. And in 2015, there were 71,740 abortions in Florida. And this table lists each reason and the percentage of abortions that occurred because of it. And there's a number of things that really jump out to you about this stats, the stats here. This is, again, for the state of Florida. Uh, but I, I suspect you probably have similar stats for for the nation uh, as a whole. But according to this, the overwhelming most common reason for a woman having an abortion is it was 92.330%. No reason was given as, or uh, elective. In other words, there wasn't any compelling health reason. There wasn't any compelling financial reason. There wasn't really any reason at all given. The woman just wanted an abortion. That is 92%. So that's 60-some thousand kids that were killed, unborn children who were killed by abortion in the state of Florida in 2015 uh, for no reason at all. Now, no reason was given. It was, it was an elective uh, abortion that was done. 92.33%. So, I mean, you know, when you listen to Elizabeth Warren, it's interesting. She doesn't list, you know, she, she lists all these hardship cases, but she doesn't talk about the fact that the overwhelming, over 90%, of abortions, again, this is from the state of Florida 2015, but again, I'm, I'm operating under an assumption that you probably have roughly similar percentages if you look on the nation as a whole, that the, the overwhelmingly, the most common reason for getting an abortion is, is just an elective abortion. That, that's all that is. Now, in 6.268%, it says the woman aborted for social or economic reasons. All of the other reasons listed here are less than 1%. 0.666%, there was a fetal, a serious fetal abnormality. 0.294%, the woman's psychological health was threatened by the pregnancy. 0.288, the woman's physical health was threatened by the pregnancy. So about a quarter of a percent, about one quarter of one percent of the abortions were because the physical health of the mother was threatened. Very, very rare. 
0.085% of the women was raped. Again, that's that's a very common thing. You listen to Elizabeth Warren. I, I don't know if she mentioned specifically rape in that that clip we looked at, but this is one of the objections. You know, people want to say, well, what if a woman's raped? Well, this is a, an extraordinarily rare thing. I'm not saying that that's not a difficult situation. I'm just trying to point out to you that when we we break this down, we look at the statistics. Abortion is overwhelmingly a, a, an elective decision. Uh, made because you know it's inconvenient. The, you know, the the woman doesn't want the pre- you know, the child for whatever reason, whether it's embarrassment or you know, who knows, or it's just inconvenient. You know, and doesn't doesn't want to doesn't want uh, to have to raise a child at that time, and just get rid of it. You know, like maybe you'd, you know, like you you know maybe you buy an item and you bring it home and you realize oh well, I don't really want this. Maybe the shoes don't fit or, or whatever, and then you take them back to the store. Well, you just just get rid of it. You know, this isn't this is something I don't want. It, that's the overwhelming, over ninety two. Again, I emphasize ninety two point three three percent of abortions done in the state of Florida in twenty fifteen were elective abortions. Get down to the last two reasons here for an abortion. Point zero six five. The woman's life was endangered by the pregnancy. So again, you know, you you hear about that a lot. That's incredibly rare. And then point zero zero one percent. The pregnancy resulted from an incestuous relationship. So so there you have it. Uh, that's the breakdown for the state of Florida, and and again, you, you know, all of these these really sort of tough cases that Elizabeth Warren likes to put out there and, and, and try to intimidate people from saying you know abortion is wrong, they really don't amount to to very much in terms of of how frequently those those issues come up. And I think that's something to keep in mind when we we talk about abortion. So uh, let's continue here talking some about abortion. Here's a, another story, and this is from Fox News. It says, liberal, groups calls, liberal group calls for protest at conservative Supreme Court justices' homes. Now, see, this is one of the things that, you know, that, that we have, have noted here. I mean, if you've been paying attention to the news at all, what you, what you realize is that if, if you have the, and I'm, I'm going to use air quotes here, so air quotes, right, Supposedly, if you have the quote right political opinions, you can get away pretty much with anything. You, know, you think about all of those riots. You know whether you're talking about the the Black Lives Matter or the Antifa riots back in in 2020, and all of the ridiculous things that went on. And there was very little done legally. You know, you had the Antifa up there in Portland burning down. I mean, they burned down the city pretty much every night for months on end, and nobody did anything about it. And I, I think you have to assume that that means that there were some very powerful, very wealthy people that wanted that to happen. A lot of people think that that George Soros is is behind Antifa. Now, I don't have any hard proof of that. I know some people that I whose opinion I respect uh, do have are of that view, and 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 that I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, th- I think George Soros, and you, know, you might say he's one of the usual suspects. I mean, we know he funds very left-wing, very, really very destructive groups. You know, we think about the Soros prosecutors. You know, we talk a little bit about some of the, the outrageous stuff that's going on in California, say in Los Angeles or San Francisco. Well, those are both cities that have Soros-funded prosecutors, as do a number of other large cities. For instance, Chicago, that's another one. Philadelphia is another one. And I'm sure there are others, but those are, are some of the major cities that have Soros prosecutors. I think St. Louis does as well. And and it has destroyed criminal justice in those areas where uh, those prosecutors are are in place because they do not pro- they they don't do the job they will not do their job they refuse to do their job 
and it has caused death, property destruction. It has caused, and and I'm sure that it's it's resulting in a lot of poverty and uh, a lot of other um, uh, very negative sort of knock on effects that come when you have just rank lawlessness. When the government refuses to do its god appointed job to punish those who practice evil, you know that's why you have prosecutors. That's why they're there, and they refuse to do their god appointed job. And, and not only are they they failing to carry out their duties as, as civil magistrates, they are sinning by doing that, and they're going to have to answer to God for their sins, for what they're doing. That is sinful for them to, to shirk their duty. And, and they will have to answer at the judgment seat of Christ for that sort of thing. So anyway, getting off on that tangent here, let's go back to where I was talking about liberal group calls for protests uh, at conservative Supreme Court justices' homes. So yeah, I guess what I w- was really saying there is that if you have these very, quote, progressive, there's nothing progressive about it. They're really regressive. They're really very uh, lawless groups. Uh, if, if you happen to hold an opinion that, that uh, is, is supported by the establishment, well, you can pretty much get away with anything. And so you've got this group. In fact, it was a group, uh, it says, the activists are organizing under the moniker Ruth Sent Us. And, of course, that's a reference. Ruth, in this case, is, is a reference to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the supreme, longtime Supreme Court justice who died, uh, I guess that was in the, the fall of 2020. So not quite, not quite two years ago, uh, maybe a year and a half ago or, or so, maybe a little bit longer than a year and a half. Uh, but that's a, a reference to, to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And they claim that they're going to be going out there and doing this in, in her name. You know, and they they think that this is is somehow a good thing. And in fact, I think there was I, I did see a I did see some uh, some news here tonight where I guess there was a a protest at one of the Supreme Court justices' house, and I believe it was broken up by the police. Uh, the the police did not allow that to 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 get too out of hand. But you know, who knows what might happen here over the next few months? You know, I think the idea is that these uh, these groups are going to try to intimidate some of these justices out of their decision. So there are five Supreme Court justices, nine justices on the Supreme Court, and five of these justices apparently have voted to to overturn Roe v. Wade. And the the goal of these protesters is to uh, to get them to uh, to reverse at least one of them. If they can just get one of them to flip, and you've only got four justices, uh, four out of nine, well, then that, that whole uh, majority opinion becomes a minority opinion, and Roe v. Wade stands. That uh, appears to be what their goal is, and we can, uh, can pray that, that that does not take place. But kind of reading through this, it's interesting. He says, you know, the move comes after a draft copy of Sam- Justice Samuel Alito's opinion upholding the Mississippi abortion law leaked to Politico. The decision would overturn Roe v. Wade if adopted by four other justices. Chief Justice John Roberts described the leak as a betrayal of the court on Tuesday and ordered an investigation of the incident. So, yeah, they're still claiming that they're trying to find out who who leaked this this draft. Uh, We don't know at this point. I don't know if we're ever going to know. I'm not going to hold my breath on that. So there's that. Let's see. What else do we have here? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've got uh, our esteemed president as well. He, He decided to weigh in on this. And... This past week, he made this comment, and, and he was, was commenting on the Supreme Court decision, and he said this. He said, this mega crowd is really the most extreme political organization has existed in American history. Now, this is the typical kind of rhetoric that we have heard from Biden 
since he took office uh, over a year ago now, I mean, there, you know, it, it's remarkable that he can sit here, even if you believe the election results, which I don't, but if, if you, even if you, let, let's just go with what the, the official tally is just for argument's sake here for a moment. Donald Trump received the second most votes of any presidential candidate in history. So I think it was around 70-some million votes. So apparently, I, I guess, uh, Joe Biden wants to say that there's 70 million Americans that are part of the most extreme political organization that's existed in the history of the United States. Now, that's, you know, I have never heard a president consistently attack large swaths of the American people the way this man does the way Biden does. I mean, the, the rhetoric that comes out of his mouth is, is shrill and it is dangerous. Is he is trying to demonize uh, rhetorically uh, conservative Republicans. He's taking aim at these people. You know, he calls them insurrectionists. He calls them white supremacists. Um, he calls them, uh, you know, uh, like I say, uh, radicals or, you know, extremists in this particular case. You know, he'll stand up there and, you know, we might recall last fall when he came out with his, uh, his COVID vaccine mandates and he was lecturing people. He says, our patience is wearing thin. You know, I've never in my life heard anybody, any president, or at least someone who is in the office, I, I, I don't think he was duly elected. I, I think he was, was cheated in. But I've never heard anybody in that office ever talk about Again, large swaths of the American population, the way this man does. It's very dangerous and it's very chilling to hear this type of thing because when you hear that kind of rhetoric, I mean, that's almost setting people up for being, uh, uh, being imprisoned, being considered enemies of the state simply because of their political opinions. So if you don't agree with abortion, you're an extremist. You know, if you don't want to get vaccinated, well, their patience is wearing thin with you. You know, if, if you don't happen to think that uh, critical race theory is the most awesome idea you've ever heard, well, you're probably a white supremacist. You know, and that means you're an all-around very bad person, and you deserve to be punished. You, know, you deserve to be censored from, uh, from social media. You, know, you deserve to be shamed publicly. Uh, and, and maybe you deserve to have something else done to you as well. I mean, that's, that, that's kind of the implied, that's kind of the message behind this. It's, it's kind of like the mafia. You know, there's that, I, I don't know if the mafia actually literally says this to people. Maybe they do. I, I don't know. But, you know, they, they say, well, you know, hey, you know, that's a, that's a nice family you have there, mister. Uh, it'd be a shame if something happened to it. And it's kind of one of these very, very uh, uh, thinly sort of veiled kinds of threats. And in this, pre this, this individual, this Biden fellow, he consistently does this to the American people. And, and he wants to make those people who disagree with him politically in, into his, his enemies, not just his enemies, but really declare them enemies of the state. This is a serious problem. And if you don't agree with me, you're going to be punished. And of course, he's a Roman Catholic, and he, he goes to a Jesuit, goes to a Jesuit uh, church, Parish in Washington, D.C. And, and this, of course, is the kind of rhetoric. This, this is very similar to the kind of rhetoric you get out of a pope. You know, you ag agree with me or, or something bad's going to happen to you. You know, you're going to get whacked. And, and so, yeah, I, I think that this is in part a function of the, the, uh, the, the philosophical ideas he has about government. I mean, he's, in my opinion, he's a servant of Antichrist, he's a servant of the pope. 
And this is the kind of way you would expect someone who's a, a servant of Antichrist to talk. We haven't seen this sort of thing before out of a president, but you're getting this out of him. Uh, it's very disturbing to listen to. So let's go on here. Okay, um, you know, just continuing with our theme here of abortion, here's a something interesting I came across on, on Twitter today. And it's got this headline here. It says, women on TikTok say hookup culture will be absolutely decimated if Roe v. Wade is overturned. So what's hookup culture? Well, it's basically when, you know, people go out, they, you know, uh, maybe go to a club or something, they decide to, to go home and, uh, and to commit an act of fornication. Now, I mean, the, the scriptures tell us, you know, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. That, that's out of Hebrews. It, it's very interesting. I, I read a, a biography one time of uh, one of my favorite, I guess, favorite figures in the English Reformation, or really in the Reformation period, was a gentleman by the name of, of Hugh Latimer. And, and he was a real, genuine uh, Christian hero. He was burned at the stake when he was in his 80s under, uh, under Bloody Mary. He served for many years as the... Uh, as the court chaplain to Henry VIII. Now, of course, being a when you're you're in a position of of serving Henry VIII, that, that's kind of a dangerous place to be. You know, you might end up having something uh, something bad happen to you. You kind of get a uh, a dead fish on your your porch or something like that. <laughs> if you you ran afoul of Henry VIII, you know, he wasn't was uh, was the kind of guy he wasn't afraid to to execute people if they uh, displeased him. And, and a lot of people ended up uh, having some very, uh, very bad ends under Henry VIII. But Hugh Latimer was very, was very bold. And of course, Henry VIII, he was someone who did not engage and you know, he did not conduct himself in a, uh, a sexually moral manner. And there was a, an account I read where he had given a copy of the Bible to Henry VIII as Hugh Latimer. He was a Protestant. And, and he gave this to him, and and I guess he and when he gave it, there was like an embroidered kind of a napkin or something like this that was part of the the Bible or, or placed over it or something like that, and it had that verse in Hebrews on it: "Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge." Hugh Latimer actually gave this Bible with this this embroidered cloth to Henry VIII. Now that took a lot of courage. He could have been killed for that, uh, but Henry VIII accepted it from him. Kind of a uh, an interesting story. So, so yeah, you know, this this whole idea of this hookup culture, I mean, is a very sexually immoral culture. And it's very interesting that you know the that if you have that, that abortion has act, you know, the widespread availability of abortion has helped to fuel this immoral lifestyle. So you read here again, women on TikTok say hookup culture will be absolutely decimated if Roe v. Wade is overturned. Well, that would be a good thing. Again, we talk about. You know, the idea that the civil magistrate uh, is to punish those who practice evil and to praise the good, to promote what is good. And so you, if you make it harder to, to kill an unborn child, you're also going to cut down on the bad behavior that is producing so many, so many uh, abortions. And that is the, the hookup culture that's going on. Young people are, are sinning frequently and very gravely. Uh, against their own bodies. It says that, you know, that it talks about those who commit sexual immorality sin against their own bodies. And of course, they sin against the Lord. And it's interesting here, it even has a, a subheadline here. It says, some TikTok users say they would enter the celibacy area, celibacy era if Roe v. Wade is overturned. Well, good. I mean, th- these would be good things. It would stop people from sinning as much. It would cut down on that. It's not going to eliminate it, of course. 
you know, any more than passing laws against theft eliminate theft. But it's definitely going to, going to uh, change some things, and it's going to change them for the better. So this is another good reason to, um, to be thankful for the uh, potential overturn. It hasn't happened yet, but for the potential overturn of Roe v. Wade. It, it would improve sexual morality in the United States. Now, one thing I wanted to talk a little bit about, too, is not only what uh, the overturn of Roe v. Wade will do, but also what it won't do. Overturning Roe v. Wade will not ban abortion in America, but what it does do is it removes it as a federal issue. So prior to 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, individual states had laws against abortion. Now, some of them were more liberal, some of them were more restrictive, but it was a state-level issue. It was done state by state. Well, Roe v. Wade comes along in 1973, and it overrides all of those state laws, and it, you know, and, and it imposes a, a requirement, a constitutional um, right, the, judge, the justices found. There's like, a woman has a constitutional right to an abortion. And so it becomes a right in all 50 states, regardless of what the voters in those 50 states think or thought. Our Constitution is set up to grant the federal government certain enumerated powers. And if a power is not granted to the federal government, it's not granted. Now, you can go out, and I would challenge you, you know, if you want to get out a copy of the Constitution, you can read through the whole Constitution, you can read through the Bill of Rights, and you won't find any language in there at all about abortion. The Constitution simply does not address it. It just it doesn't address it. It doesn't address it at all. So because the Constitution doesn't speak to it, there is no legitimate basis for the Supreme Court to, to come up with a ruling that, the, that there's a constitutional right to an abortion. It was, it was a, a terrible decision. It should never have been made. You think of it, it the, the Constitution, the logic of the Constitution, it, it's, some, it, it's really the same as the, the doctrine of the, uh, the regulative principle of worship. So if you're familiar with Reformed uh, reform thought, say the Westminster Confession of Faith, there is uh, the, the Westminster Confession talks about the regulative principle of worship. And let me just read to you from the, uh, the Westminster Confession here. It says, quote, this is Westminster Confession, chapter 21, uh, section 1. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited to his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representation, or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. So the Scripture tells us how we are to worship, and if, it does, if, there, if the Scriptures do not prescribe a particular practice, churches are not permitted to do it. If a, a, uh, a Worship practice is not granted in Scripture, then it's not granted. Some people, the way they like to interpret Scripture, they say, well, you know, if, if the Scripture doesn't say you can't do it, well, we can go ahead and do it. Well, well no. You know, that's, that, that, that destroys the whole idea behind revelation. You know, God has revealed in the Scriptures how he is to be worshipped. And we are not free to just do uh, whatever, just because it doesn't tell us specifically in the scriptures that you can't do these things. And the Constitution is the same way. It's a, it's a constitution of enumerated powers. So it says, you know, the federal government can do A, B, C, and D. 
You might say, okay, well, what about E, F, G, H, I, and J? Well, is, are those in the Constitution? Well, no, the, the Constitution says nothing about e, I, e, F, G, I, H, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. It doesn't say anything about those things. Okay, well, then the federal government can't do those things. It can do A, B, C, and D, but it can't do E, F, G, H, I, J, K. It can't do these other, other things because they're not listed out in the Constitution. They're not enumerated in the Constitution. It's the same concept. If it's not granted, it's not granted. So there's nothing in the Constitution about abortion. So therefore, the Supreme Court had no place even making a ruling about that. You know, they just, again, this is something that they just invented. Uh, in much the same way that they invented the, the uh, constitutional right to same-sex marriage. They really use the same kind of bad logic. There's nothing in the Constitution about, about marriage. It says nothing. You, you can go all the way through the Constitution. There's nothing uh, in there that gives the federal government the power to regulate marriage. It says nothing about it. But the Supreme Court in 2015 passed the, you know, the uh, they came down with a ruling, and the, the case was Obergefell versus Hodges. And in fact, that case uh, started here in Cincinnati, went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court uh, found in favor of the, uh, the plaintiffs and said, yes, you have a right to same-sex marriage, and they overturned all of the uh, state-level laws um, prohibiting same-sex marriage. Uh, Ohio had such a law. Uh, Indiana had such a law. Uh, Kentucky had such a law. So there's Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, and many other states had these kinds of laws. And they were all uh, voided by this constitutional uh, ruling by the Supreme Court. Uh, again, just making up something out of whole cloth. The Constitution says nothing about same-sex marriage. Therefore, it is a state's issue. You know, that's, that's what the Tenth Amendment says. There's a, a Tenth Amendment to the Bill of Rights. And the Tenth Amendment reads, The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. And to put separately, unless the Constitution specifically grants a power to the federal government or specifically prohibits the states from engaging in something, then... Those those uh, those powers, say the regulation of marriage, for example, the regulation of abortion, for example, those are two examples. Those powers are to be handled by the states or or the people. So I mean, this becomes a state level issue, and you know, is, is you know, I would love to see abortion illegal in all fifty states. But here's something else that I know, that that's not going to be the case in all 50 states. Now, there are some states that will uh, be very strict in regulating abortion. There are other states that will be wide open. I mean, I guarantee you places like New York or uh, New Jersey or Rhode Island or Massachusetts, some of these you know, so-called blue states, California, you know, Oregon, you know, Illinois, they're going to have uh, very liberal abortion laws. There are other, other states are going to be more restrictive. Think of places like, say, Texas or some of the southern states or even Ohio. I mean, I, I suspect, you know, Ohio has actually made things uh, fairly restrictive, uh, even as it is. And, and I suspect would probably even be more so if, uh, if you have, uh, if this, if Roe v. Wade is actually overturned. I mean, this would be a good thing for the United States. It would be a good thing for the people of the United States. It would save lives. It would cut down on our massive amounts of sin. 
that goes on. And, and I think that this is something that, that would be, be good for the nation. You know, I think one of the reasons that we are suffering so badly as a nation, you know, economically, politically, uh, geopolitically, is because we've turned our back on God. You know, we have many things that we do that are displeasing to him. And this is certainly chief among them, is, is the abortion that we have. If that were to be cut down, if it would be much more strictly regulated, that would be good for many things. And we talked about it would, it would probably cut down on the hookup culture. It would probably have other healthy effects, maybe things that we haven't even thought of yet. But I'm sure that they would be good things. But of course, you know, you've, you've got the people like Elizabeth Warren and others out there. They're going to fight tooth and nail to make sure that mothers have a right to kill their, their unborn kids. And, and they just, they have to be defeated politically. Well, you know, I had a bunch of other material here tonight. I was going to talk some about immigration. I was going to come talk some about COVID. Uh, but I look at this and I realize, man, wow, I'm already over an hour. I don't know. <laughs> that went pretty fast. I guess I've been pretty windy here tonight. So maybe I'll just go ahead and, and wrap things up here. I just want to say thanks for uh, for listening in. I, it's always uh, enjoyable to do these things. And I, I hope, uh, I pray that, that you got something uh, useful out of some of this here this evening. Until next week, next time we talk, may the spirit of truth guide you in all truth as you read and study God's word. <laughs>